Okay, well, uh, thanks for taking the time out of your busy, hectic schedule to join us. This is the uh, Inkstuds Radio Show, broadcasted out of uh, CITR in Vancouver. And, of course, I'm always joined by my uh, wonderful co-host, Colin Upton, and today our special guest, uh, Eddie Campbell. Thank you for joining us, Eddie. So, okay, so I guess we'll start by talking about your, uh, your latest book, the uh, soon-to-be-released uh, Black Diamond Detective Agency. Yeah, I... Um I've I've heard of sightings of it. I he- I hear it's out already in the bookstores. Um, not in the comic shops yet, no. No, well, yeah, I got a I got a, an advance copy just uh, for this occasion. So luckily, I was able to uh, make mangle my way through the uh, wonderfulness. Um, so let's talk a bit about the history behind this because you've been working on it for quite a while. I understand. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's strange going from you know, producing 
producing a comic book every month to uh, disappearing for a whole year and then at the end of it handing over a you know, 120 page book in full colour with um, no communication with the outside world during all that time which is why I started a blog it serves the serves the purpose that letters pages used to serve uh, just keeping in contact with the world I've looked at your blog and it seems to be uh, a lot more intensive than letter pages that's <laughs> <laughs> I, in fact, the, the the blog is in danger of taking over my life. It, um, <laughs> it, I, I've given up my day job in order to be a blogger. <laughs> it's quite interesting. You're going through a whole in your blog um, through your whole history of your work, and uh, how is that going through? Like finding the old uh, covers and things, going through all that. I, I find it's good. I've got this. It's good to have this huge archive of, of stuff to fall back on. I'd like to improvise new ideas every day, but uh, I've, my strength has always been this archive. Even when I was self-publishing, I had this huge archive of stuff to which I owned the copyright that I was able to, to reprint in, you know, in, in bound paperbacks and so on. And so I wasn't like, like when Jeff Smith started self-publishing, he was starting from the word go. He he had nothing. Mm-hmm. But I've been I've been working in in, in comics for, for fifteen years prior to that, and I had this huge archive of material that I could depend on, that I could lean on. And I'm finding that even more so now uh, um, with the blog. If I could. Just, uh, I could draw a page of Alan Moore's script and talk about it, or I, I can show these old covers of mine and show variations and outtakes that the world's never seen. So there is that. But ideally, I'd like to come up with a fresh idea, a new anecdote every day, but uh, that's more than anybody could do, I think. <laughs> well, it is one of the more uh, solid uh, outputs of blogging I found uh, among artists, so it is quite commendable, the amount of work that you've been putting into it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm just going to steer right back to the Black Diamond uh, detective agency, um, kind of the, well, the one of the purposes for uh, chatting uh, today, um, or at least the reason I was connected with you by uh, the lovely people for a second. Um, that it's um, story you wrote, you you adapted from a screenplay, I understand. Yeah, Charles Gabby Mitchell is the uh, the writer. He. He was involved with a film recently called Blood Diamond with um, mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio. So he's, he's got a few good credits. He's not uh, he's not a newcomer by any means. And the the producer who owns the the screenplay is Bill Horberg. He was the producer. He was the producer of the a movie that's just come out called Copying Beethoven with Ed Harris so I um, I don't know I've never really asked them I, well, I've, I've wondered whether it was an opportunistic idea the, the idea of deciding to put out a graphic novel ahead of this original screenplay um, but however it happened they they had the idea 
I'm worried about whether they thought, you know, graphic novels are the big new thing. Let's let's turn our screenplay into one of those, expecting it to be an instant uh, success. So, because as we know, as we know, the graphic novel market is more fraught with difficulty than that. So, so I was approached. I don't know. I don't know why I was picked. Maybe I was just available. Maybe I have a reputation for being able to recreate uh, the 19th century or something, you know, from after From Hell. And uh, it's been good fun. I spent a year on that, um, immersed in reference and photographic reference of old Chicago and uh, Missouri and so on, which are which are the part of the world I really don't know very well. So apart from seeing it in movies, so so I'm no expert at all. Let's let's hope it works. So is the idea that they write the screenplay, do the graphic novel, which will help make the movie happen? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure what the, what the thinking is here, because this is, it, this is back to front for me. You know, <laughs> normally, you, like with From Hell, we... We did the graphic novel, and then a few years later, there was a movie made of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, we sold the we sold the movie rights when, with From Hell when we were only halfway through it, and uh, they'd already written the script by that time, which shows you how interested they were in in, <laughs> in what we were doing. Uh, so this is back to front. Let's we we have this script. The script was done. What can, how can we? This, the way this is their thinking. How, how can we progress with this? How, how about we have it out there as a book first? Well, we'll have to make the book. How, how about we make a graphic novel? I'm presuming the thinking went along those lines. Now, um, or, sorry, uh, originally the book um, was supposed to be in grey tones, I understand. The book was in what, sorry? The originally the Black Diamond Detective Agency, you're planning on doing it in grey tones? No, it was always going to be in colour. All of First Second's books are in colour. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're probably thinking of The Fate of the Artist, my previous Oh, book okay, that's the one. Okay. That was a book I'd already, I'd already started. I already had 30 pages of it when they approached me. I think they approached me to do The Black Diamond at that time, and I managed to sell them this other book. <laughs> while, they were, while they were talking about that one, I sold them the other one. So then I had to convert the grey tone artwork into colour. But uh, but this one was colour right from the start. Now they were going to have some they were going to have somebody colour it, but I said, "Oh, let, let me paint it." I was wondering, um, you're using grey tone wash now, or, or you you did it in the Fate of the Artist? Is is that because you can't find zip anymore? Uh, I think com- computers have rendered zip obsolete. In fact, I've just been ta- I've just been discussing the problem with um, with another artist by email. I'm currently scanning, photographing my old zip-based artwork <laughs> for for republication. This will be the first ever digital version of the of the Alec books. 
which go back to the early 80s and which are full of zipatone. And the problem with scanning it and reprinting it is that you've got to know what you're doing, otherwise it's just going to be riddled with wire patterns or, or other problems, because it was never meant to be scanned. Uh, if you're going to put in grey tones in, in computer art, you, you put it in on the computer, you don't mm -hmm. scan it. In. So, uh, since everything is, is computer-based now, with sticking bits of it's dot tone onto original artwork onto paper is, is, is completely obsolete and it is a difficulty to reproduce the stuff that already exists I know because I'm trying to do it at the moment using Photoshop uh, I guess I, I worked out a system or I had worked out a system based on my first book but on the second one I'm using much finer tones and I'm realising that it's even more difficult about 50 50 lines per inch reduced by 63%. It is not easy to reproduce digitally. I am discovering. <laughs> so, no, I, I won't be using that stuff again. Alas. Alas. I had a lost art form. My last two or three books have all been colour painted. I'm enjoying doing that. And the one I'm working on just now is another colour painted... Uh, book called The the Amazing Remarkable Mr. Leotard. What's that going to be about? We're all curious now. Mm. It, that's about um, that's another period piece. It's based on a, it's based on a circus personality of, of the 19th century. The, the, the original Jules Leotard after whom the article of clothing was named. Uh, so th this is an actual historical figure then? He was, yeah. But uh, I'm not using him. I'm using somebody who's impersonating him. Because <laughs> he, he died in his 20s, which, wasn't, which didn't give me much to work with. So I've got his nephew adopting his name and, um, and identity. And the work is a complete fiction. Wow. So you have, a, a, I guess, a bit of an interest in kind of 19th century um, kind of settings, is that a more recent thing since From Hell, or is that something you kind of had interest before, just didn't I've touch on been it? I've always interested in, in history, but not, not as a, just the story of it, not, not as a, a historian. I'm not really interested in the in details of how they did things differently, or, or clothing, or how gas lamps worked. Or, or, or steam engines. I'm not. I'm not interested in the nuts and bolts. Just more of like. I, I, I'm rather naively think that they led more interesting lives hundreds of years ago than we do now. Nowadays, we just sit in front of the computer. We don't do anything. I'm uh, entirely guilty of that myself. <laughs> Is it? Is it difficult doing these period pieces um, in Australia, where, which is fairly new? I think it's easier because if I was in London trying to draw Victorian London, I, I wouldn't be able to see the wood for the trees, so to speak. Uh, I think I would have found it difficult. I, I think it's more easy to recreate Victorian London my, in my head when I'm nowhere near modern London. And probably the same for 1899 Chicago. Uh, although I think you have to visit a place, you have to 
every city in the world has its own feeling about it, its own sense of space, uh, how wide the streets are, or how much light is getting into these streets. That, that's a very specific feeling to each each city in the world, and I think you have to know that. Sometimes even the smell of a city influences the way you will you will draw it on the page. That's kind of interesting. Mm. Um, when working on uh, doing uh, Victorian London, um, how much did it help? Because I noticed you had, you had a lot of photo reference from uh, Alan uh, sending you stuff along with the scripts. How much was that dependent on the photo reference, and how much did you try and bring your own experience with that? I I think with photo, with photo, photo reference should be used as a... As a as a, a reinforcement, it shouldn't be the it shouldn't be the original and complete thing. I, I think we should be able to improvise as a you know as, as an artist. But it, it, it's useful to to have that thing to, to reinforce the the thrust of what you're doing, rather than be the thing that you're doing. Um, to add a, a note of authenticity to what you're already about. Um, but I, I try not to. I try not to to get bogged up in costume detail. Like a costume drama can be the most boring, tedious thing in the world. Did, did I like to. You know how we go out. You know how you go out in the street in your own time. You're only half paying attention to what people are wearing or what, mm-hmm. or the style of the motor cars. You're kind of half aware, unless you're in the motor trade. You're only half aware of what different cars are passing you at any given moment. And I, I try to apply that same principle to a historical setting. I, I'm vague about details. I don't need to know how the gas lamp works because the people walking around at the time probably never thought about it. Do you, uh, do you ever get uh, grief from historical, uh, yeah, purists? No, I, I, n- I never have. But my art is not detailed enough that, that, that it appears to be making a, a didactic statement about anything. And that's it, 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 it catches everything in an, in an excited sweep of the brush. <laughs> there's not much to, there's nothing left to argue about. It's not quite in focus enough to, to start an argument, I think. They kind of link. Although I worry, I used to worry a lot about things like that when I was doing from. I worry a lot about about the coaches or the horses. For instance, I, I once said to Alan. With with Netley and his his coach and horses, where is he keeping these horses? Does he have his <laughs> own stable? Is he borrowing the is he borrowing the company coach or for the weekend the way you know the way people do? I Alan never actually addressed that one, but it did worry me. I, I the the mechanics, the the logistics of where this guy's coach and horses were kept at night. <laughs> Oh, I, I thought Alan Moore did very detailed uh, scripts. He, did, he never worried about the practical things. Like he, he was very good at thinking about um, uh, you know, the, the philosophical 
aspects of it. Or <laughs> I guess it's the Netley Stables would never address, even though I kept asking. <laughs> I guess it's more about the art of the page than necessarily the, like something behind the story behind it. Or I don't know if I'm really saying what makes sense. Um, with uh, Black Diamond, um, I notice uh, you sometimes like have unfinished parts to it, like uh, where you'll still have like the pencil lines in there. Is that kind of part of the purpose of trying to make a really like rough um, style to it? I guess is that the word I'm looking for? I if I if I noticed that I would have cleaned it up. I <laughs> I, I well, I don't mean to. I'm embarrass. usually I'm usually focused on 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 a bigger on the bigger picture on the generality on the on the bigger view of a thing I I don't have my nose in that close I it's uh, yeah I, I'm usually uh, I'm usually di- I'm directing I'm directing from 20 yards away if you like <laughs> I, like Cecil B. DeMille moving his uh, he's, he's huge numbers of people around the sound stage I'm not really noticing what what people are wearing on their lapels or or how many buttons they've got on their overcoat. Um, I tend to be I tend to be vague about things like that. Um, well, your your so, work you've been so I, if you tell me which pages they're on, I'm going to erase them. I, I, I didn't I, usually I don't notice. It was pretty I, subtle. I'm a I'm a thorough reader. I used to. There's a there's a famous anecdote with From Hell where we used to. I, I had an art assistant, Pete Mullins, and he, he together we churned these pages out. I do the main characters, and he do a bit of inking, bit of background. I'd go in at the end and um, pull everything together with a lot of sketchy lines, you know, shading and so on. And then we'd give it to Anne, my wife, who did the cleaning up, the you know, rubbing out of the pencils, <laughs> the erasing. But there was a whole head of Aberlane which we'd forgotten to ink. Somehow <laughs> we just overlooked it, because I, I always use a very dark pencil. It was easy to overlook things. Anne completely erased his head. <laughs> but we were moving so fast that we didn't... We packaged this up and sent it into the publisher, not even noticing there was a head missing. There was a guy... He had his hat on, but there was no face <laughs> between the hat and the coat. So, so and the, and the, it was the first version was published like that. Wow, that must have seemed very symbolic <laughs> to someone. It was a metaphor. So, and this guy was talking as well. There was a balloon <laughs> pointing to a face, <laughs> and the publisher published it, and nobody noticed. So sometimes, sometimes you're just concentrating on on the bigger picture. You, Mm-hmm. To even miss a detail like that, an important detail like that, it, it can it can be done. Never mind that a, a piece of penciling has not been erased properly. <laughs> I I didn't because mean that, it. In with a, a big hundred and forty, well, you know, with a hundred and forty <laughs> page color book, um, the artist is looking at that as as a single big object. It, it every, at every point of the way, he's always pulling pages out. Scanning backwards and forwards, 
it's easy to miss a, a very small detail when you're, you're working on that scale. I was just wondering if maybe it was like a texture to add or something. I wasn't trying to make a a, a, a comment, a negative comment. Um, now, The Fate of the Artist, that was your first color book that you started doing color on? Which, which one? The Fate of the, the Artist. The I did a 48-page Batman book oh, before that. That was before Fate of the Artist. Yeah, have you seen that? Yep. Batman, The Order of Beasts, in which, which is set in 1939, and Bruce Wayne goes to London to... Um, ostensibly to, to concerned with sugar importation or something. Um, and he gets mixed up with this uh, coterie, this club of, of English gentlemen who dress up in animal clothes and it's like a good old-fashioned Batman yarn. Mm-hmm. No, I, uh, I, I've read it and quite enjoyed it. Um, he, um, because it's a bit sugar, I, I had this scene where he was going to be in a pub discussing the, the sugar you know, export-import thing because, you know, the, 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 trade li- the trade lines being blocked by the Germans. Um, they were good, and over a pint of beer, they were going to be discussing this because, of course, beer is, you know, sugar is important to beer. But they wouldn't let me have a scene where there was beer drinking going on, so we had to uh, we had to make it a, an old-fashioned English tea room. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got I have Bruce Wayne sipping tea with his little finger raised. I saw Frank I saw Frank Miller a couple of months later, and I said, "Hey, Frank, <laughs> screw your Batman. My Batman drinks tea." His <laughs> little finger up. To <laughs> Your Batman's more comfortable with himself. <laughs> a lot less anger to let out. Now, uh, oh, go ahead, Colin. No, I was just uh, kind of surprised that you would do something like Batman because I was reading somewhere you were talking about how we should be leaving superhero comics behind. Um, like there was the difference between comic book culture and graphic novel culture. Yeah, I, my whole I, I, my whole self-publishing operation had come to a standstill. It had wound down, and um, it was just a job that came up. It was a job that had, had almost been presented to me, and I just disappeared for a year and uh, painted a you know a forty-eight-page Batman book. I'd become disillusioned or, or broken. The whole the whole thing seemed to be broken to me. I. Uh, I didn't know what to do next. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I went against all my principles, <laughs> all my all my previous ideas on the subject. What? Pro- um, so, I the artistic life is a strange one. It's um, it's made up of all sorts of crooked twists and turns and compromises. That's my explanation. <laughs> um, I have a question from one of my co-hosts who wasn't able to make it. Um, is uh, in reference to Faye the artist. Um, what inspired you to mix the photo text comics, etc., into one package? When I started it, I was actually going to write a novel. Um, it was going to be a prose novel, but I, 
I couldn't keep my hands off it. I started drawing pictures all over it, uh, and it developed from there. But the earliest parts of it were actually the the prose pages. And when I started adding comics pages in among prose pages, I, I thought I'm a, I might as well go the whole hog here and uh, and build a book out of disparate parts. Because I had the idea that um, I wanted the parts to be linking to each other the way we do in on the internet. I, I wanted the different parts of the book to be interlinking. So therefore, they had to clearly be different parts. Each part had to look or feel completely different from all the other parts. There's about five or six different modes of, of presentation in the book, you know, from, from prose to, to photographs to old-fashioned cartooning to subtle painting. Uh, and, and they're all... The book's switching from one to the other, and then it's becoming this complicated matrix of interconnections. It's quite an ambitious thing altogether. All so the the photograph is, is, is it's a, that's an old Italian mode of of comic stripping, where the instead of drawing, you use photographs with, with word balloons coming from actors playing the parts. Fumetti, I think it's called? Fumetti. Fumetti is the word for Italian comic strips, but we, when we use it in English, we're tending to be referring to the photographic style of Italian comics. Yeah. Now, is this a learning curve for you with this book? Trying Which to one? Fate? The Fate of the Artist. I, I think it was more... It was more uh, um, I think it was more a, a, a last word, a, a, a wrapping up of, a, a summarizing of, of of everything learned up till that point, rather than a, a first step and a, a new venture. Is it kind of an end papers to the like, whole? It was like a complete statement of, of everything that I had in my head up to that point. It's great working with First Second because the books are so beautifully produced. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 haven't stinted on the production at all. That is the finest printing I've ever had, uh, and it's the most accurate color printing that I've ever I've ever seen. I've had some terrible print jobs over the years, but this is beautiful. Every every color is exactly as it was meant to be when it came out my paint box, and that's not an easy thing. I. The print, no, the, the the print business is, unless you're paying out a lot of money, is such a hit or miss thing. Certainly at the at the level I was working at, with my self-published comics, and I've been talking about this on my blog, uh, how you could you could never depend on a thing to look like you meant it to look when you drew it. Mm-hmm. Just so. Just that cheap level of black and white printing, and then stick a color cover on it. But but it's, it was always done on the cheapest possible printing presses, you know, the most uh, primitive. It was printing the presses to to get to, to to be able to to put a book out that only cost you know twenty or thirty cents to make, 
you, you have to use you know, this incredibly coarse kind of printing. So it's, it's a delight. Or maybe I was just being cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same one as uh, Dave Sim, am I right? The same printer? Who for did? The, for when you did, uh, when you self-published Bacchus, was that the same printer that did uh, Cerebus? Because I know yeah. that From Hell was he, the same. He thinks he's gone out of business recently. Mm-hmm. The, the reason I, I stuck with him be- was because he did everything the old-fashioned way. He was the only printer that I, I knew of that still photographed artwork o- on an old process camera, as opposed to scanning it and, and putting everything in on you know digitally and with, on discs and so on. Nowadays, you don't even send artwork to a printer; you send a disc, and he just puts the disc in the in the thing. Set, fixes all the settings and negatives are made. I don't think they even make negatives. I think the plates are treated straight from... I, I don't even understand it anymore. It's all beyond me. <laughs> I'm just a, a reader. I would have no idea with the yeah. uh, the intent but, process. Uh, I think... In, uh, but that was why I like Prenny Print, because they, they did things the old-fashioned way. And as an artist, I was doing things the old-fashioned way. From Hell was supposed to look like like it had been drawn in the 1890s so I didn't really I wasn't in any hurry to advance it into the 21st century the, the process of making the books which in the end I had to do because uh, Prenny went out of business but perhaps the things that made him useful to me that is that he still worked in these old fashioned ways made him useless to everybody else <laughs> it was his and, un- uh, and now he's gone bankrupt so in the end, we had to make a digital version of From Hell, and, uh, which was a huge, huge task. You had to like problem. track down people with original art, from what I understand. No, no, we didn't have to do that. Oh, okay. I actually scanned it all in. Oh, okay. Huge task it was. But then we, uh, we sat down and looked at my scans and rejected everything. <laughs> <laughs> scanned in the entire book. So what we did then was, in an act of desperation, we we got Prenny to to get the negative. I think we did. I think Chris had done it earlier. He got Prenny to get the negatives out out of the of the of the the print shop, you know, to sneak them out in the dead of night and keep them in his garage on a huge big pallet. Then we had those shipped to uh, Quebec or the other printer up there in Canada, who. Who found a pre-press place that scanned the the old negatives that we'd been using for the for five or six years to print the books? So they they scanned the negatives, but because Prenny print print Prenny's print jobs were so coarse and rough, and Quebecors are much more subtle, that using the same negatives we've actually got a much better book. Hmm. So the new edition is the best looking version of the book that's ever been out there. Now, originally that's from... The, that's the sixth, the sixth printing actually looks better than all the previous ones. Against all the odds, <laughs> we, we ended up with a better product. Now, do you prefer it on the rougher paper? Because it was originally printed on some pretty high-gloss pages. Oh, I, 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 was, I always argued against that. I never wanted it on the gloss. Nobody would ever listen to me. <laughs> they went ahead and did it. I... It, it was never meant to be it was never meant to be that kind of art job it was supposed to look rigorous and rough and, and dirty and, uh, and 
horrible. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was drawing it to look like that, and they were printing it on this fine, glossy paper. To, to suit I the period? Eh? To suit the period? Yeah, it, was supposed, it was supposed to look like sooty London. I was deliberately spattering ink all over the place <laughs> to, to make it look dirty, or, or using using crayons and, and smudging them and so on. Now, um, one question I have about is uh, your use of assistance, because you were mentioning before you had an assistant for um, for From Hell. Was that all the way through From Hell, or kind of latter as you're pumping it out more and more? more? That was more or less all the way through, like, because I was, I was putting out a monthly self-published book and drawing From Hell at the same time. I was churning out a hell of a lot of work over those years. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, 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 I couldn't work like that now. I don't have the energy or the the industry to work like that now. I've become more of a an author who, who, who and recluse sitting at home with my dog and cat and it paint painting all day. But there was almost something hectic back then of turning uh, things around and, and sending things off and on the phone all the time and arguing about details with distributors, arguing about percentages. It was a hectic few years. I don't think I could do that again. I think I'm burned out at the end of it. Did you have a... I'm happy to just go and draw Batman. I just felt completely burned out. Did you have a studio? Just at home. No, we just worked from home, but I had two art boards and, uh, and a big table with a typewriter on it. If you want to call that a studio, <laughs> <laughs> my my wife handled the office, and uh, I had an art assistant. So, and then I had other people coming in and out, doing design or or selling me story ideas or whatever. Now you also use there was always three or four things going on at the same time. I couldn't imagine looking back at the uh, kind of the amount of work that you have. Um, for an independent creator, it's quite substantial. Um, I think it was sixty issues of Bacchus, and then a fair amount before then. Um, volumes of yeah, this, this nine volumes of Bacchus, the big six hundred page, sixty issues, yeah, nine trade paperbacks. There's five trade paperbacks of my autobiographical stuff. So I think I think I've got about um, sixteen or seventeen books out there. Now earlier you were mentioned. And there's one of them that sells. <laughs> <laughs> From Hell just keeps selling and selling. I think we're into about two hundred thousand of copies of it out there. Wow. And we just and we just sold it to Japan too. Mazeltov. At last at last we've cracked the Japanese market. But uh, but it hasn't appeared yet there yet, I don't think. It hasn't come out yet. Now you're mentioning earlier, um your uh kind of go re uh, doing some of the page, or I guess computerizing some of the pages from the uh, earlier Alec stuff. Is there a plan to do a collection of, like a new yeah, collection I'm of Alec work? Friends at the moment. There's a French edition that's coming out volume by volume. The first, the first volume looks really good. We solved all the technical problems, but there seem to be other technical problems in the second one that I hadn't even predicted yet. So I'm becoming the expert on uh, scanning Zipatone. If anybody else needs to do it, I'm I'm the guy they're going to have to come to from now on. So they were, I've just I've just sent off the second volume, and uh, 
as I work through them, when, when I've got it all wrapped up, then we'll put out a, an English language version. Is it going to be kind of a, an omnibus collection or just separate editions of each book? Probably. We'll probably do a big book, one single big book. But as with the From Hell, now, now that I've actually gone through it, uh, it looks brilliant. It looks it looks perfect. It looks like it was always supposed to look. Because I, I, I've, I've scanned it. I've gone... I've gone in there close on the screen. This is the problem, you see. When when we were fixing it up before, it, it, it was uh, it was um, it was eyesight destroying work going in there trying to fix details in among zipitone dots. You know, you can hardly see. Now I can blow them up on the screen. I can remove little blemishes and things in among in among a screen of dots at fifty lines per inch. I can blow them up on a screen and fix any problem. I hadn't thought of that before, that uh, the computer is actually a big help in this. I, I thought this, this, this was pre-computer work. It was, the computer would be of no help in, 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 in perfecting it or bringing it, making it better, but quite to the contrary. Uh, I, I think when we get this out in an English language edition, it'll look very handsome. It'll be, it'll be as it was supposed to look all along. Well, this the French one looks good, so I, I, I've got big hopes for it. Uh, will this include the um, stories, uh, the, the Ace uh, Rock and Roll Club? <laughs> huh? I don't know. Now, that's been out of print for 14 years. Yeah, I, I have my copy at home. Mm-hmm. Always wondered about yeah, the teddies. <laughs> what <laughs> What exactly, for our audience, can you explain what the, the teddies were, are? The teddy, the teddy boys? Yeah. They were in, it was a 1950s fashion. It was, it was the rock and roll fashion, but but it, don't, it only happened in England. Elsewhere, they they greased their hair and wore leather jackets. But in England, they wore Edwardian suits. I, I don't know how this fashion happened. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't just Edwardian suits; they were adapted so that so they they'd wear them in bolder colours. And this would be a a, a suit jacket that went down to the knees. It was almost like a variant of the old 1940s zoot suit. And and. Uh, but anyway, there was a, in the 70s there was a revival of this style for some reason. I I don't know why. There was a revival of the whole rock and roll appreciation movement, and and the teddy boy thing was. With these, with these garish suits, and they wore them in even more garish colors than they used to do in the 50s. And the hairstyles became even more elaborate, greased pompadours. It was quite quite magnificent spectacle. This happened in the early 70s, and then punk came along around about 76. And the punk movement that declared itself the, the mortal enemy of the teddy boy. And the teddy boy represented a, 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 a traditional backward view of life. Are, are there still Teds? In many ways, and in many ways, the, the Teddy Boy was politically regressive. Oh. He tended to he tended to be to be associate himself with um, uh, very right wing political ideas. So, so it was a very interesting time where. Uh, and when these things happen in England, the gangs always meet at the seaside and have these huge 
running gang battles, and it's all and it would be all over the newspapers. <laughs> English, English uh, rock culture, only in England. Uh, are there still Ted's then? I don't know. I, I he's I in Australia, Colin. In <laughs> I've been living in Australia for twenty years. I'm completely out of touch. I, I don't know what the the fashions are in England. What what people are prepared to fight over? It's wonderfully stupid. Going <laughs> <laughs> to the seaside for a fight. I mean, you, wonderfully you stupid. Anyway, that's what I was trying to write about stuff like that with the in the days of the Ace Rock and Roll Club. But uh, somehow or other, it, it turned into something else. It turned into a, a peculiar little... Um, that's where I started to find my autobiographical voice. The uh, the more introspective and um, uh, self-critical ill at ease in the world kind of Alec McGarry voice. So, but, but I see, I don't, I'm not, I don't know that I, really, I would want to include that in a big collection, those early Ace Club stories. I think they're prehistory. Oh, I like them. Colin just wants to show off that he has it. Hey, well, I, I'm also curious about your earlier small press stuff. If, if you ever thought of collecting those as well? Um, I, I, most of whatever whatever could be salvaged from it has been salvaged from it. Like the original Alex stories all appeared in small press booklets. I don't think there's anything that I haven't. There's nothing worth collecting that I haven't already collected or rescued. I used to, I used to, except for a thing I used to do in the weekly rock paper sounds. I don't know. It sounds it's still around or it isn't. I can I haven't seen it. But one the first paying job as a cartoonist way back in '84, uh, I used to do the wonders of science with Phil Elliott every every week. I think that's mostly nostalgia, but I, I can certainly see in comics there's a, a new appreciation for reprints of older comic strips and artists. Heard of it? 
it's a, I've got to write about it on my blog. It's a gorgeous big book. I've always wanted. To, I've always wanted uh, Topfer's Rudolf Topfer. He's he considered the originator of the of the comic strip. Finally, I'm able to get a book of his work. So maybe maybe things are turn, changing for the good. I, for a long time, I thought that uh, that the world's sense of history was getting shallower and shallower. That we only had, if ten years ago we had a a memory of the past that was eight years deep, five <laughs> years ago it would only be three years deep. But I, I I'm, I'm reassessing my my thoughts on that one. Well, this it seems to be easier and easier to to acquire the past. The in, the, the internet and, and all these pay TV channels seem to be making the, pillaging the past and making it available in in, in a volume that uh, oh. didn't have before. For instance, on YouTube the other day, there I watched George Melier's. Uh, Flight to the Moon. You know the old eighty when 1906 movie? Yeah, I think Voyage so. Voyage to the Moon? Yeah. Now, I'm familiar with that. I've seen snippets of it. For the first time in my life, last week, I sat down and watched all 12 minutes of it from start to finish. And I thought, why have I never been able to do that before? It's quite neat. Like, I watched uh, Windsor McKay's um, Gertie, Gertie the Dinosaur on YouTube. That's right. Similar. What's that? 1914? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's similar vintage. Suddenly, we can see all these things. We'd only ever heard about them. We'd seen the stills in books. I I finally now we can see. Yeah, finally we can see these original things on YouTube. I finally got to see the infamous uh, Spike Milligan Pakistani Dalek sketch. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I am the. Uh, the very much Canadian guy who has no idea what you guys are talking <laughs> about. I think I know what Daleks are, and that's about as far as. <laughs> um, now, a couple questions about Bacchus, because um, I've been uh, going through them and reading them recently, and quite enjoying them. Um, what was your interest in in using him as a long uh, term character? The thing I liked about him was that uh, I, I wanted to do an American comic book, and uh, it, it's one of those things that. That, that is done in American comic books from time to time. We we pillage mythology for for superheroic figures. You know, we, we've got Thor, we've got Hercules, Wonder Woman, and so on. I thought I'd do it, but I'd pick one. I'd pick a character who would be absolutely no use as a as an action hero. <laughs> <laughs> Bacchus, the god of wine, the drinking hero. He he was more to my taste. Philosophically, um, and then having having picked him and uh, having the whole backdrop of uh, Greek mythology to use, I decided that all the other gods were dead. So I, I from the from the from the word go, I made it difficult for myself. <laughs> well, the stuff I really enjoy from the Bacchus is uh, when you uh, retell um, mythology kind of in a, your own, I guess, spin and stuff. Have uh, you always yeah. had a big it's thing? It's all told in a modern slang kind of way, and it even it even inv- interpolates objects and, and 
places from modernity into these old um, into these old myths. But I like to think I was true to the spirit of the myths, and certainly truer than anybody else has ever been. Sometimes you even read modern serious tellings of these things, and they're just so dreary. Uh, they needed some life and blood re-injected into them. So that, that was the challenge. I had, uh, while at the same time reading it, I was taking uh, Roman history in school and I read the Aeneid. So it actually it was a, a nice overlap. Yeah. They're separate histories, but... Um, is the eyeball kid have roots in myth- Greek mythology? Well, the original Greek character was Argos of the Hundred Eyes. Oh. Who, who, I, oh, I can't remember the story offhand. I, I just ages since I read it. He didn't he like watch he, some he was, cows. He was left as a he was he was left as a um, as a guard to guard a maiden whom whom Zeus intended to seduce. So Zeus had him lulled to sleep, but with sweet by by Hermes playing sweet music. And when he nodded off, Zeus nipped in and had his way with the maiden. And um, I can't remember. As punishment, um, uh, I I, I think, I'm trying to remember what happened to Argos, but Argos ended up as the eyes on the peacock's feather, a peacock's tail. Mm -hmm. Um, The eyeball kid is a grandson of Argos. Argos had a hundred eyes. The eyeball kid's only got 20 (laughs) <laughs> Actually, 19, because he lost one in a fight. Oh. Now, are there any plans to uh, possibly get some of that Bacchus stuff back in print? Y- yes. I, I'd like to eventually... It's actually appearing in Italy at the moment. We're up to... Vol- I, see, I forget. The America hasn't seen it for a while. But um, it's actually... I'm still putting it out for Italy. We're up to. I'm just waiting for Volume Seven to appear. I should be getting a copy of that in the mail any day now. So I'm still repackaging it for somewhere in the world. It, at any given time, it, it's coming out somewhere. There was a Spanish edition prior to this one. Um, so, in, so eventually, like like with the Alec books, I, I'm hoping to have it all scanned and. Uh, and put out a big collection in an English language edition. I look forward to it. I've uh, tried tracking down most of the books, but I'm missing about two or three, I think. So, one day. Yeah, there's a few of them out of print. There's two or three that we still have in stock. But, um, but and you self-published those, and then Top Shelf distributed them later, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Top Shelf still got a few of of the the albums. But uh, it was becoming... I'd lost interest in, in keeping everything in print. I'd reprinted one or two of the volumes, and um, it was all becoming too complicated. It was, it, the whole operation was starting to require more money put in than was coming out. Mm-hmm. So I, I called a halt to the proceedings and uh, withdrew, withdrew from the fight. Comics are an expensive, uh, dangerous game, I guess, or at least expensive. Um, the uh, Don had another question. Um, the guy who couldn't make it to the interview today. 
uh, about writing. Um, what inspiration do you take from writers like Henry Miller, and how do you apply them to comics form? Well, I haven't read Miller in 20 years. I, it's funny how these things, you know, people... Um, it's one of those things you ask authors, what, what were your influences or whatever. It, frankly, I can't remember. It was so long ago. When, when you're trying to uh, imagine yourself as an author, you... You know, you, you look at various models and um, try them on like uh, like a suit of clothes. I, I was taken with Jack Kerouac for for a while, way back in the seventies. But I haven't read him in over twenty years either, thirty years probably. So the the answer there would be I, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any I might even read Miller now and not like him anymore. <laughs> Well, it's interesting, you know, the, a lot of writers, um, they definitely, like, uh, capture a certain time in someone's life. Like, Kerouac, I think, is definitely, like, it's something you read in your 20s, but, I mean, you're not going to want to go on a big drug trip in your 40s. No, I, I, I imagine that if I tried to read him now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like him very much. It was kind of funny, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is another person that you read at a certain stage in your life. And my daughter was reading him a, a couple of years ago, you know, her late teens. Mm. So I was running around trying to find my favorite H.P. Lovecraft books for her. Uh, the, the ones that specifically contained the Cthulhu mythos. Um, and I found myself rereading some of those old things again. Uh, nostalgically. But... Uh, after reading a few, I I got the gist of it, and I thought, well, this was fun, but I've got more important things to do <laughs> to be reading this stuff all over again. I, I think you have to be a certain age and of a certain in a certain frame of mind to to be able to lose yourself in that. I think I was about sixteen. Yeah. When I was reading Lovecraft. That, that frame of mind, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you find? I notice you're pretty thoroughly researched looking at your books and stuff. Is that something where you're constantly reading new things and taking new information? Yeah. I, I think you've got to be doing that all the time. Um, in my new book, uh, Leotard, the amazing, remarkable Mr. Leotard, he, uh, all the characters have just got on the Titanic and uh, so I've had to completely relive the thinking of the Titanic and, and uh, I'm researching all the details and what uh, what the dining room would have looked like in, in steerage and so on. It's very difficult to find photos of that. The, 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 the first class dining room is well photographed. We know exactly what that looked like and I'm wondering I'm trying to work out details like what would, would the guys in steerage have been able to buy beer and things like, you know, details, just details, details. Could you go to, the, I don't know, the Titanic movie for that kind of thing? <laughs> would that help? <laughs> I do have it, but um, I've, I've, got, I've, I've got an internet site that lists all the, the mistakes. They <laughs> <make>. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got, to be care- you've got to be careful about things. Uh, that, that, that's the kind of research I'm doing. I will, I will look at the. I do have it here, the Titanic movie. But I also, you know, while I'm while I'm 
watching that with the remote in my right hand on my left hand I've got the list of mistakes that they made <laughs> <laughs> but of course for most people that's going to be their their image mental image of the Titanic now I haven't even seen it me neither I actually uh, the only it, s- it, it, is, it is very good they do it, it, it's, a, it's very clever how they, they, they construct how they constructed it um, in, in a in a big basin in, in Hollywood or wherever it was they did it but uh, the lighting and everything certainly makes it quite convincing that huge bit the huge the butt of the ship when it when it's good it's you know it's ass in the air that's the one part I've seen falling off it it's very it's very convincing there is a sense of a huge big object sticking in the air with an enormous weight uh, there's a lot that's good about that movie well James Cameron is a an extremely capable director. Yeah. He did the drawing of um, Kate, didn't he? There's something about that drawing that looks bogus to me. There's something about the style of it that looks modern. It doesn't look like a drawing that was done in, in 1912. That, that's, one of the, that's one of the things in the movie that doesn't sit right with me. Something about the there's something about the style of it that looks very. It looks like it has a knowledge of too many things that that have, in the world of illustration that have come after, you know, the whole 1930s, 1940s slick illustration. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like something that was done in 1912. I've always, I've always had it in for that drawing. Cameron did it himself, I believe. And that's actually something I've noticed, uh, especially with From Hell, is the the artwork definitely um, kind of reminds me of like a lot of the wood plate stuff of that era. Woodcut. I was wood trying cut. to, yeah, I was trying to, but then again, you can you can never put yourself completely back in in the eighteen nineties. That, 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 that there's a there's a cinematic cutting and from from long shot to close up and, and whatnot that that is inevitably going to be modern. But I was trying to give myself the tools of the liberated penman of the 1890s because uh, illustrations had always been made from wood engraving up until the 1890s. Suddenly they were able to photograph it so they could photograph their own pen lines. And so there ensued this, this dashing style of what we now refer to as the liberated pen They'd be throwing throwing those pen strokes around with merry abandon <laughs> and panache, like uh, Charles Dana Gibson or Sullivan or Kemble or Frost, all the, all the that first great wave of American illustrators. Wow, you're probably the only cartoonist I've come across that's actually made references to the old uh, the war artists. The ones that were working before photography was printable in newspapers. Yeah, uh, Homer Homer Davenport and um, Frost's early work, Tenniel in England. That that whole period has its own attractions. Yes, the, uh, from the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. Hmm. I I wanted also was wondering about Thomas, uh, Thomas Nast is another one. I love Thomas. Nast. <laughs> the, the U.S. cartoonist—he's he, brilliant. Sorry, what were you saying? No, I was just going to ask. Uh, 
if you could tell the the listeners about the was it the foot rule. Uh, Maybe it's a little something for that. The was a, that was a college presentation that I did once. I, I had these, uh, the ten rules. I tore the rhetoric of the comic strip, and they were they were all very highfalutin and complicated. Um, I can't even remember some of them. Like, for instance, a thing has not happened unless it can be seen to have happened. So that you, for instance, you can't refer to a thing in words. You have to actually depict it. And the same applies with with any visual medium, with, with um, film or whatever. But I had, I had nine very complicated rules like that, and the last one was that you must draw a pair of, at least one pair of feet on each page as, as a, a basis to the, uh, to the seriousness of the rest of my rules. But it's actually, it's actually a very serious rule, because um, I, I see so many people drawing talking heads or, or parts of pictures if you if you force yourself to remember to draw a, a pair of feet at least once on a page then you have to stand back from the scene and take in the whole of a scene uh, and, and, and think about the way everything's connected with, with perspective lines and whatnot. well there's a serious intent behind behind all my humorous proclamations, you know. No, I think it's a good rule. I uh, interviewed Ralph Steadman in the fall, and he actually had kind of a similar thing where he uh, was telling us about how he would teach uh, students to try drawing from the feet up to see what kind of body they they get instead of, you know, starting with the head and the body, seeing how it looks from the feet up as your starting point. So I thought I found that pretty interesting. That's good. I once thought Deadman at a book signing. Um, he was getting bored just signing his name, so he actually got his he got his cigarette lighter out and set fire to the title page of the book that he was signing. <laughs> <laughs> quickly, quickly batted out the flames with his hand, and then using the burnt edge, he created a picture. You would whatever that burnt. I can't remember what it was. Maybe the burnt edge. Whatever it reminded him of, he immediately turned it into a picture. Oh, wow. <laughs> that guy's incredible. The regular edge of the burned, you know, the burned paper became the the profile of whatever. Wow. Whatever he saw, whatever the drawing was becoming. He's uh, quite an amazing fellow, Stan. Yeah. One of the great. It originally, his first uh, derby art he did with uh, Hunter S. Thompson was actually makeup because he didn't have any of his art supplies. So he just used someone's makeup. <laughs> well, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eddie. Check out our website, inkstuds.com. we got lots of... uh, Inkstuds. Will do. Will do. Thanks, Eddie. Okay. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Colin. Good talking to you. Okay. Have a good day. Young, I'd flee this town. I buried my dreams underground. As did I, we drink to die, we drink to die. 